The reality of American capitalism today is very far removed from the laissez-faire mythologies propagated by Western Europeans, American progressives, and now some American conservatives. Welcome to the Acton Vault podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. For this episode, we're bringing you a talk from March 2023 and our Acton Lecture Series. One of America's success stories is its economy. For over a century, it has been the envy of the world. The opportunity it generates has inspired millions of people to want to become Americans. Today, however, America's economy is at a crossroads. Many have lost confidence in the country's commitment to economic liberty. Across the political spectrum, many want the government to play an even greater role in the economy via protectionism, industrial policy, stakeholder capitalism, or even quasi-socialist policies. Numerous American political and business leaders are embracing these ideas, and traditional defenders of markets have struggled to respond to these challenges in fresh ways. Then, there is a resurgent China bent on eclipsing the United States' place in the world. At stake is not only the future of the world's biggest economy, but the economic liberty that remains central to America's identity as a nation. But managed decline and creeping statism do not have to be America's only choices, let alone its destiny. In his new book, The Next American Economy, Nation, State, and Markets in an Uncertain World, Dr. Samuel Gregg insists that there is an alternative. And that is a vibrant market economy grounded on entrepreneurship, competition, and trade openness, but embedded in what America's founding generation envisaged as the United States' future, a dynamic commercial republic that takes freedom, commerce, and the common good of all Americans seriously, and allows America as a sovereign nation to pursue and defend its interests in a dangerous world without compromising its belief in the power of economic freedom. Dr. Samuel Gregg is Distinguished Fellow in Political Economy at the American Institute for Economic Research and an affiliate scholar at the Acton Institute. He is the author of 17 books, including the prize-winning The Commercial Society, Wilhelm Rupke's Political Economy, Becoming Europe, and the prize-winning Reason, Faith, and the Struggle for Western Civilization, as well as over 400 articles and opinion pieces. He writes regularly on political economy, finance, American conservatism, Western civilization, and natural law theory. He is a contributing editor at Law and Liberty and a visiting scholar at the B. Kenneth Simon Center for American Studies at the Heritage Foundation. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Vault is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Welcome to our March edition of the Acton Lecture Series. My name is Dan Churchwell, and I have the pleasure of serving as the Director of Programs and Education at the Acton Institute. Um, we are really looking forward to this lecture from Dr. Samuel Gregg. Uh, we do have a virtual audience as well, so I said good afternoon to you. But uh, those of you who are on the uh, digital platform, good to see you as well, wherever you may be. Thank you for joining us. On behalf of our benefactors and those who fund these uh, wonderful events, thank you to all of you who are able to attend in person and online. We are looking forward to a roughly 35-minute lecture and then 25-minute Q&A um, from Dr. Greg. Please do wait. Because we have an online audience, we will have microphones being handed around for you to ask your questions directly to the speaker. It is uh, my pleasure to introduce Dr. Sam Gregg. To some of you, I've met several of you, this is your first time here, so welcome. But for uh, many of you, this is uh, not a, a name that you're unfamiliar with. Dr. Gregg is currently the Distinguished Fellow for Political Economy and a Senior Research Faculty at the American Institute for Economic Research. 
and a research fellow continually here at the Acton Institute. He's the author of over 16 books and more than 400 articles, and has written publication for publications like The Wall Street Journal, Investors Business Daily, Foreign Affairs, American Banker, and the Harvard Journal of Law. He writes widely and is very interdisciplinary in his thinking. But the one thing that we have, and we, and we do have signed copies of his brand new book that came out late October of last year, so just about four months, The Next American Economy. What I really do enjoy about the book is that it's actually filled with hope, but it, it takes a very intense look at reality of where we stand, but offers a hopeful trend towards possibilities of growing and maintaining the strength of the American economy. So today, please welcome with me, Dr. Samuel Gregg. Little step. Well, thank you very much, Dan. It's great to be back here at Acton. It's great to see some longstanding friends and some acquaintances and some new faces as well. So thank you for coming today. So in one sense, this is going to be a talk about my book. <clears throat> But in another sense, what I'd like to talk to you about this afternoon in our brief time together is a phenomena that I think has characterized, let's call it American conservatism, over the past eight years. Uh, and it's something that I think that many people here are very aware of and have thought a great deal about. And that is the significant breakdown in the post-1970s consensus concerning the proper stance of conservatives, of the American right, etc., vis-a-vis economics and economic policy, and even more specifically, free markets. Uh, it became very evident to me in 2015 that much of the American right was starting to fracture around the topic of economic policy and that a consensus about free markets that even some parts of the American left had more or less accepted was starting to disintegrate literally before our eyes. So since I'm here at the Acted Institute, I'm sure I don't need to explain to this audience uh, the nature of this consensus. And this consensus emphasized things like the value of free enterprise, the value of rigorous competition domestically, the value of free trade abroad, and the value of limiting the government's reach into the economy. Now, there was a gap, sometimes a very significant gap, between conservative rhetoric on these issues and it's called a conservative reality or between government policies and what governments actually did. But I think that with some notable outliers, that was more or less the consensus and it pu started publicly disintegrating in 2015, though I think early signs of that breakup had been there all along for those with eyes to see. Going all the way back to Pat Buchanan's campaign for the Republican nomination in 1992, and even further back in American history to some of the debates in the 19th century about tariffs versus protectionism, I'm sorry, versus free trade. So, the reasons for this breakdown, I think, are many. They range from uh, the dominant, albeit I would argue largely false narrative that emerged to explain the 2008 financial crisis, to things like awareness that China was not, in fact, becoming just like us following its entry into the World Trade Organization in 2000-2001. Another cause, I think, of this breakdown was growing tendencies to attribute some very serious social dysfunctionalities in America to economic causes. 
Now, I have many thoughts about the hows and whys of the collapse of this consensus. And I'm not going to dwell too much on those this afternoon, except to say that there's a lot of blame to be shared around. Um, that includes, by the way, some of my fellow free marketers. Those free marketers who I think took too much for granted. Those free marketers who assumed that the ideas bat a battle about economics had been won. Or... <clears throat> those free marketers who bought into the end of history arguments associated with the political scientist Francis Fukuyama, these arguments became very popular in the 1990s and they led many people, and not just people on the right, but many people to believe that free markets and liberal democracy were just somehow inevitable. We were just marching towards the end of history. But rather, however talk about the past, I want to spend some time today talking about the consequences of the breakdown of this consensus, because the consequences are not limited to intellectual squabbles. It's not just rhetorical. The consequences are very real. So let me list just a few. First of all, <clears throat> Many conservative organizations that were once reliably free market in their economic outlook are no longer so reliable. And that has consequences for what they teach young conservatives about economics and how they advise legislators about economic issues. Second, <clears throat> many, if not most, of the new conservative organizations that have come into existence over the past 10 years, I think have generally tended towards economic nationalism in their economic policies. And that too has consequences for what many younger Americans are being taught about economics and economic policy. Third, <laughs> some senior Republican politicians have publicly stated their openness to adopting various forms of intervention, commonly known as industrial policy. And even, in one or two cases, they've even argued that we should be more like China in this regard. To be even more concrete, some Republican senators' policy positions on particular economic matters are now not all that different in their substance from those policy positions of Senator Elizabeth Warren, who's very much an economic nationalist. Fourthly, <clears throat> I think this collapse consensus means much less resistance on the part of conservatives to expansions of state power into the economy. In some cases, that even extends to a stated willingness by some conservatives to use and even expand the administrative state to try and realize specific economic and social goals. The argument goes like this. <clears throat> we failed to wind back the administrative state, so we may as well use it to achieve our own ends. Now, I'm afraid that outlook is remarkably widespread on the American right right now, despite the fact that a good deal of modern American conservatism wants to find itself as being in opposition to progressives and modern liberals who saw the administrative state as the way of the future. But it's not just the political and policy realignments that follow from this conservative split about economics that we need to be concerned about. We also need to be concerned about the implications of this shift for the country. Because as a country, America has been declining in critical economic areas like international competitiveness, 
but also broad measures of overall economic freedom since 2008. So when the Heritage Foundation's Index of Economic Freedom was first published in 1995, America ranked as the world's fourth freest economy. Today, in 2023, America ranks 25th in terms of the world's freest economies. Countries like Sweden and Denmark are actually economically freer than the United States today. Over the last 10 years, once you take out the sudden declines and surges associated with the impact from and recovery from COVID, America's average economic growth rate has been below 2%. And since 2000, it has never reached the 5% level. And anemic economic growth translates into a weaker economy, and a weaker economy means a weaker nation. Now, above all, I think America's economy is drifting more and more in the direction of what I call in my book, state capitalism. So what you may ask is state capitalism. Well, state capitalism is an economy in which institutions like private property, and market transactions are maintained in place, but in which government programs and government regulations permeate every sector of economic life, and in which we put our faith in technocrats to try and engineer specific outcomes in different economic sectors. Despite all the documented failures of such approaches and despite all the well-known political dysfunctionalities associated with these approaches. Or, to take another angle, pre-pandemic U.S. government spending between 2015 and 2019 averaged between 35 and 36% of American GDP. That's one-third of the economy. So, in that light, I don't think we should be surprised that Nine out of 20 wealthiest counties in the United States today are located in or around Washington, D.C. In other words, cronyism is flourishing in America. And I don't think conservatives should be in the business of proposing policies, whether it's tariffs, subsidies, industrial policy, or ever-increasing regulation, Conservatives shouldn't be in the business of proposing policies that exacerbate this growing cronyism problem. So put another way, the reality of American capitalism today is very far removed from the laissez-faire mythologies propagated by Western Europeans, American progressives, and now some American conservatives. And I think the last thing we need today is for significant numbers of American conservatives to be advocating for state capitalism light. Well, that's to adopt the mindset of progressives. And progressives are in the business of putting as much distance as possible between the principles of the American founding and the trajectory of contemporary America as possible. And that brings me to Another reason why we should worry about this turn away from markets by many American conservatives. And that reason is it's damaging American conservatives' policy integrity. And that in turn reflects, I think, an unhealthy desire for power and an unhealthy willingness to sacrifice truth to attaining power. So what do I mean? Well, we've been informed by some conservatives, for example, that Adam Smith only applied his free trade principles to domestic investment. That's simply untrue. That's simply untrue. Other conservatives now tell us that the New Deal was a marvelous thing. 
Well, that's despite the mountains of evidence assembled by economic historians, including some progressive historians, indicating that the New Deal did not get America out of the Great Depression. Yet other conservatives, echoing arguments made by progressives 15 years ago, insist that we can learn many things from Chinese state capitalism. Now, this flies in the face, I think, of growing evidence, which Beijing is trying to hide, that the wheels are falling off that particular wagon. And some of the same conservatives are associating themselves with those who regard the American experiment in self-government as fundamentally flawed and at the root of our present woes. In many cases, some of these conservatives have a vision of America that is as directly antithetical to the founding as that of Woodrow Wilson and the progressives of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So, <clears throat> what's to be done? How do we rehabilitate the case for markets among American conservatives? Again, I have many thoughts about this, but here are a few that I think are worth considering. First of all, one, many things are already being done, like engaging and contesting economic nationalists in policy debates should be continued. That means promoting the type of rigorous economics that highlights the well-established problems with economic nationalist policies. There is, for example, a remarkable consensus in the economic literature concerning the ways in which free trade grows an economy over time and the problems created by protectionism when it comes to economic growth. So, <clears throat> if truth matters, then this type of information needs to be articulated and re-articulated over and over and over again. But, and this brings me to my second point, free marketers should also recognize that the attacks upon free markets by conservatives and others are being made today as much on historical, philosophical, and ethical grounds as they are on economic grounds. Now, <clears throat> some of these attacks are based on very, very dubious claims. But whether it is attempts to put shiny glosses on the New Deal or creatively reinterpret Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations along protectionist lines, or to tell us that the American system was this marvelous thing, all these arguments take the case against free markets beyond the economic realm, far, far, far beyond economics. So it follows that these arguments need to be countered on the same terrain. History, philosophy, ethics. And unfortunately, many people today who favor free markets are ill-equipped to do so. Now, this leads me to my third, <clears throat> more positive thought. At the head of every chapter of The Next American Economy, except the concluding chapter, you will find a pertinent citation from Adam Smith. Now, that's not a coincidence. It's a reminder to those who favor free markets and limited government in the United States that they need to expand their arguments beyond the world of supply and demand not only do they need to show that markets are not, in fact, to blame for many of the things that conservatives are worried about, they also need to show how free markets and principled limits on state power can contribute to many of the things that conservatives care about. And in this regard, I think they would be following the example of some of the greatest economic thinkers. Let's consider, for example, Adam Smith. Now, I think it's obvious that appeals to economic efficiency and effectiveness were central to Smith's case for free markets. 
But his wealth of nations also reflected the wider civilizational agenda associated with the Scottish Enlightenment. That great series of 18th century thinkers who wanted to apply the new science of man, as they called it, to transform the world and to help to realize what was called at the time the civilization of natural liberty. Their vision, as articulated by figures like Smith or philosophers like Francis Hutchinson and Thomas Reed or the historian William Robinson, their vision was an agenda that sought to end legal privileges for the politically well-connected. It was an agenda that sought to create opportunities for millions of people stuck in grinding poverty. It was an agenda that sought to expand knowledge of the new possibilities in fields ranging from medicine to astronomy and aesthetics. But it was also an agenda that simultaneously sought to promote freedom, liberty, alongside commercial, classical, and religious virtues in the commercially orientated societies that were then emerging in the Anglo-American world. That's the type of argument that I think deeply influenced the generation that shaped the American Revolution and the American founding. It was also the argument made by Edmund Burke, whose wisdom seems ever more relevant to me today than at any other time in my life. I think it also is part of the argument that needs to be made to American conservatives. Because if American conservatism is in the business of conserving anything, it's surely the American founding and the particular complexion of ideas that it embodied, especially an idea that I discuss a great deal in my book, which is the idea of America as a commercial republic. So, to bring all this to the present, contemporary market liberals, free marketers, have for a long time been heavily engaged in the work of policy development and policy advocacy. That's very important. It needs to continue. And generally speaking, market liberals are very good at that. But I think more and more people have come to the realization that it's simply not enough. We need more people like, for example the historian Hamity Schles, or the philosopher James T. Otteson. These are individuals who combine their academic specialties, history and ethics, with deep appreciation of market economics and an ability to talk to conservative audiences. But we also need more of an even rarer commodity, And that's economists, economists who have the breadth and depth of knowledge that gives them the capacity to mix it up with historians and philosophers who are peddling populist or economic nationalist narratives, who are able to do so on their opponent's intellectual turf, and who also know how to address the concerns commonly expressed by conservatives. Such individuals additionally require the capacity to address very, very different audiences, experts and non-experts, the secular and the religious, the business leader who's tempted by the ESG agenda to turn her company into something like an NGO, or the homemaker who's considering voting for the latest politician who's promising economic nirvana, through state intervention. Now, these are very big asks in a world in which hyper-specialization 
tends to be the academic norm, especially among economists, and the economists in the audience know exactly what I'm talking about, where all of us, a world in which all of us are more or less at ease talking to some groups rather than others, in a world in which I'm afraid many free market advocates have struggled to speak to anyone but the already converted for quite some time. But it's this type of intellectual depth and versatility which I think will help to address some very real problems facing those who favor free markets today. Put simply, <clears throat> and here I'm going to start concluding, making the case for free markets today means having many more people capable of doing what individuals like the late Michael Novak did. Now, not only did Michael Novak help prepare the way for Ronald Reagan's economic agenda in America in the 1980s, part of Novak's genius, I think, was his ability to address questions that I think, for example, Nobel economists like Milton Friedman or James Buchanan, questions that they struggled to address. Another part of Novak's genius, I think, was his ability to engage audiences with whom people like Friedman and Buchanan were often not in sympathy. I think these are some of the reasons why Novak's great book, Spirit of Democratic Capitalism, published in 1982, so that's 41 years ago, I think these are some of the reasons why his book is still widely read today. Now, <clears throat> granted, such individuals and such combinations of knowledge and skills are rare. In fact, they're very, very rare. They also take time to develop. Nor will they suffice, I think, to reverse the wave against free markets that's currently sweeping the conservative world. I don't think we can underestimate just how much free marketers need to lift their game at every level if they're going to combat the ongoing slide towards state capitalism among so many American conservatives. Without, however, more of that broader outlook that I have in mind and more of the individuals who embody it, I fear that the work of advancing the case for markets among conservatives is going to be very difficult indeed. Thank you very much. One of the things we've seen over the last few years amongst conservative voters and jurors is increased hostility towards big corporations, particularly woke corporations, yeah. which may also be the ones most likely to be involved with cronyism. Do you think that trend will push us towards free markets or towards economic nationalism? <clears throat> Thanks for that. Um, in one of my one of the chapters in my book is all about this subject because uh, I've spoken mostly about the challenges to markets that are coming from the right, but there are still challenges, still challenges coming from the left. And one of them takes the form of what you're describing now. Um, we can call it woke capitalism. We can call it stakeholder capitalism. We can talk, talk about ESG, all these particular things that are going on in a lot of corporate America today. So much so that in 2019, the Business Roundtable, some of you may remember, formally sort of declared that it was giving up on shareholder capitalism and was now adopting stakeholder capitalism. So what you're pointing to is a very real trend towards um, these, trend, these, um, these forms of, of um, economic organization in corporate America. And... <clears throat> There's a crony dimension to this. The crony dimension is that it really helps if you're going in front of Congress and you're able to point to X number of progressive causes that you say that you're associated with, 
because that's one way in which you'll get at least half the legislators saying, oh, yes, that's good. We, we support that. We like that. So um, <clears throat> it does facilitate cronyism. So the question you're asking is whether this phenomena, which is very widespread in corporate America now, is going to sort of um, push further in the direction of state capitalism or whether we're going to get some sort of reaction that will represent a type of return to markets. Um, I think at least initially, the first is the much more likely scenario. And one of the reasons I say that is because regulators are already starting to try and regulate corporations down this particular path. The Securities and Exchange Commission, for example, is the classic example of this. So they're now asking corporations to explain things like, um, you need to, you should ideally have one person of color or one woman or name any number of particular minority groups on your boards and you need to explain to us why you don't. So <clears throat> that sounds like state capitalism to me insofar as it's a way of extending the regulatory arm of the state in terms of the internal operations of who goes on boards and who doesn't um, according to um, criteria that would commonly be called woke or progressive or whatever you want to call it. And in fact, I think one of the reasons some people in corporate America are going down this path initially is because they're trying to preempt regulation. They want to be able to turn around and say, look, we've done all this. You don't need to tell us to do it. So I think that's part of what's going on. Um, <clears throat> in the long term, I think there's a possibility that it may result in some type of drift back towards uh, markets. And I say that for a, a couple of reasons. One is when corporate America starts playing this game of trying to effectively um, adopt these types of causes, it's not surprising that the other side of politics, the right, gets very angry with corporate America. So on the one hand, you have a lot of people in corporate America who are trying to appease progressives. And in the process of doing so, they're alienating what had been one of their traditional support bases. So if corporate America is not careful, it's going to end up with both the left and the right hating them. And I think that's sort of where they're headed right now. And I think some of the more perceptive types of Wall Street realize this. So you have um, <clears throat> just recently, I think it was Vanguard, the big, um, have, probably has half the 401ks in this room under management, right? The CEO of Vanguard said, we're out. We're not going to play these games anymore. We're not going to play the stakeholder game. We're not playing ESG. We're not doing any of this stuff anymore. So that, and we're just going to go back into the marketplace and talk about the products and services we offer to consumers in a competitive market. So I, my, I guess my hope is that this dalliance with these particular ideas that you referenced um, and the backlash that it's producing now is going to at least awaken some minds in Wall Street to the folly of going down this path, the need to get out of politics, particularly this type of politics, as quickly as possible and get back to offering goods and services that people actually want. So that's the long-term tra trajectory, I think, which is a real possibility. Yes. I am lately disenchanted with rational thinking. And I say that because there are a whole lot of people in the culture that seem to be disenchanted with rational thinking, and they only go with what feels right or what the latest popular vibe is. And so when you're describing these very rational, very logical, very powerful intellectual arguments, I'm thinking that nobody's going to listen. So I'm wondering how we can engage both sides of the proverbial aisle to, to envision the beauty or the, the outcome that's going to make them feel like it's a good thing to do as opposed to going after the intellectual part. Yeah, no, I actually, in the opening chapters of my book, I make the point that persuading intellectuals, people involved in pol public policy is very important. But in the conditions of uh, a republic, a democracy like the United States, you have to pay attention to what the broad populace 
is thinking and, and whether you like it or not, feeling, I hate that word. Those of you who know me know that, <laughs> right? But um, <clears throat> you have to think about how you can popularize some of these messages in ways that people can get their minds around. Um, now, I, I'm not willing to give up on you know intellectual persuasion because I think at some point people do engage their minds and they start to think through some of these realities. But certainly initially you have to offer them some type of vision that's attractive, that goes beyond the world of supply and demand. Now, Ronald Reagan was the master of this, right? He was very good at, at using little homespun stories to explain why regulation was often counterproductive, why bureaucrats had fo followed their own interest. Um, he was very good at talking about the struggles that entrepreneurs had, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, that's, that's one way. But the broader thing I think that needs to be done in this area is for those of us who favor free markets and many of the arguments that I was making in my presentation, we need to wrap our message up in a very strong normative framework. And the way I think we do that is through this idea of what I call a commercial republic. And what this basically means is that reminding Americans we're not meant to be a Western European social democracy. That's not who or what America is. If you go back to the founding, you read through documents, you read through the Federalist Papers, you read through Washington's farewell address. It's very clear that the founders envisaged America as something new. They called it a commercial republic. It means a society in which <clears throat> commerce is written into everything that we do. It's something that is omnipresent in people's minds in a way that's very different from, say, a feudal society or a militarized society. But it's also a republic, a republic in which classical, commercial, religious virtues and values are very important and help to smooth over the commercial side of things, which can get very competitive. Unless people who favor free markets are able to construct some type of vision like that, and it doesn't, and I'm not, I mean, I can give you an intellectual version of what it looks like, but we need to be able to present a much more popular version of what this looks like. If we don't do that, then we lose. I often say to people, when it comes to free markets, you can win the economic arguments and still lose the policy battles or the battles for people's hearts and minds. So my book tries to do that at an intellectual level, but it also tries to say that we need to get, find ways to get into Americans' minds so that when they talk about free markets, they think that's what it means to be American, right? We're not meant to be like, uh, we're not meant to be like Europeans who are highly reliant upon welfare states and things like that. So there's a popularization element to this that has to occur. Um, and I think that's, that is a way of opening up people's minds to thinking through the actual realities of these things, the rationality that underlies it. Other questions? Yes. Fetch, just out doubt. You mentioned that faulty markets are not the cause of social problems, but that conservatives are, are trying to make this link, you know, so... We have these social problems that are very obvious, sexual revolution, breakdown of the family. So um, how, how can the conservatives get back on track without, um, so it seems like it's almost, it's not in vogue to, to play the religious card anymore because be, religious principles and, and just being religious itself is, is um, out of style, you know? And so... How, um, how do we get conservatives to actually focus on the social problems using, using history, ethics, philosophy, and, and, um, and not getting bogged down in, in solely uh, economic argument? So <clears throat> just to give a bit of context, um, back in the 1990s, when someone I mentioned, Pat Buchanan, was running for the Republican nomination president, which basically cost George H.W. Bush a second term as president. Um, he presented himself as a protectionist. He said, free trade is bad. He 
he all virtually suggested that free trade was leading to Americans dying. And we've seen versions of that argument being articulated um, in more recent years, like free trade has opened up America to the fentanyl <laughs> abuse, these sorts of things. Now, I think these are very bad arguments. They, they're, they're trying to show a sort of cause and effect that doesn't, for the most part, exist. Um, and I also will tend to point out to them that um, to say that a lowering of tariffs has led to enormous social destruction is, one, very difficult to prove, but two, um, it just doesn't match up when you consider the damage done by, you mentioned the sexual revolution, I could mention the New Deal, I could mention Lyndon Johnson's Great Society programs, which did enormous social damage, right? So <clears throat> the question then becomes, well, there's a couple of questions. One is, how do we show these conservatives who attempted to sort of, they, they wanted industrial policy because they want to fix the family, or they want to say, if we raise tariffs, that will make it easier for manufacturing workers to have a job, and therefore, I think the, the thing to show them there is that the connection between the economics and the social thing part of the, of the equation is simply not there. So that's the first thing. Um, <clears throat> the second thing I think we need to focus upon here is to point out that Americans have always dealt with social problems, and we've done it in a very different way from, say, most contemporary Western European countries, and we've done it through the top villain habit of association. So free people freely associating together to fix problems rather than waiting for a government program or Washington, D.C. to take the lead on any given number of questions. And civil society in America is, is still very strong compared to most other countries. So I think that is part of the path forward. Now, a lot of those associations traditionally have been religious associations. You mentioned re religious values before. And suddenly when Topville was in the United States in the 1830s, he noticed that most of these associations had some sort of religious dimension to them. So that suggests a couple of things. It suggests that we should be looking very carefully at religious organizations that have effectively um, contracted out that activity to the government or have become effectively arms of the government in delivering different types of social programs, which I think is a huge problem. Um, but it's also a question, I think, of realizing that the more that you expand the state, the weaker those civil associations and forms of civic activity become. So to the extent that one winds back the state, I'm pretty confident that the gap will be filled by Americans exercising this, this still deeply enrooted habit of association. Now, I would like to think that that's the sort of argument that would appeal to conservatives, especially those of the sort of small towns, um, small village, let's get together and do things together in our local community, which is all good, but I would have thought that that type of argument would appeal to them more than having, I don't know, the Department of Education or Health and Human Services trying to deal with problems 3,000 miles away. So up the back. I got a couple questions, one real quick. State capitalism sounds kind of like fascism to me. Are they different? Well, <clears throat> um, there are fascist versions of state capitalism, absolutely. So if you go to Mussolini's Italy in the 1920s, um, private property is not abolished. There's still trade going on. There's still exchange. But the state is omnipresent through corporate organizations. These are sort of extensions of the state which purport to coordinate businesses, people freely trading, entrepreneurs, etc. Uh, and so in a fascist economy, you don't get rid of these things, but you do have the state being very, very deeply involved. And, you know, it's not a coincidence that um, many of the New Dealers look to Mussolini's Italy as an example of what they were looking for. In fact, I think it was FDR said something like, we have much to learn from Mr. Mussolini. 
So yes, there are forms of state capitalism that have definitely occurred in the context of fascist regimes. Now, I often like to say, not every corporatist is a fascist, but every fascist is a corporatist. That's the first question. And, and then barring a great revival, I don't see the government political party, you know, the Republican, Democrat, uniparty, letting go of crony capitalism, would it just be better to push for a divided United States? Because um, I, I just don't see Judeo-Christian values ever coexisting, or it, it can't with wokeism. And then the fact that our government can just keep printing money to fund all their uh, terrible programs. Well, let me start with the last question. The I don't talk, I don't talk about monetary policy in my book because um, monetary policy is a highly specialized subject. But it does seem to me that uh, for at least one generation now, and especially since the financial crisis, the American economy has been uh, pumped up with easy money from the Federal Reserve since 2008, or even before that. And, and that has had some very negative consequences. So when I worked at Acton, I used to talk about this with my former colleague, Steve Barrows, who's in the office, who will talk to you endlessly for hours about this particular problem in the way that um, bad monetary policy has seriously contributed to some, not just economic problems, but the social problems that are often surrounding all that. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I happen to think the United States should say unified. Um, and we, I think the question really is, what does it mean to live in a pluralist society where people don't always agree about everything? That's, that's not a new phenomenon in American life, by the way. There's always been intense disagreement about all sorts of things in America. Now, maybe it's getting into areas now where, where um, people are disagreeing about what constitutes a woman, for example. We've never quite been into that level of territory before, right? Um, but it just seemed to me that, that America for a long time has embodied this idea of pluralism in which there is agreement, despite all the differences, despite the often very different positions taken on all sorts of issues. There, has, there was agreement, often, much of which was centered around the American founding, the Declaration of Independence, the U.S. Constitution, and many of the documents surrounding that period. There was a common sense of that is what it means to be American. Um, there's a historian, he's a progressive historian actually, named Gordon Wood, um, who wrote a book just recently about this. And he makes the point that Americans are different. Americans are different because they don't find their identity in race or ethnicity or um, historical myths that go back 2,000 years. They find their identity primarily in the founding period. That is where Americans find their sense of who they are as a people. And that, I think, is the most likely point in which you're likely to find some sort of broad consensus emerging about, in a pluralist society, there are some things that we have to agree upon, and this is where we, found, we find them. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The question, well, he was asked, the question was, is the left trying to destroy this? Oh, absolutely, yes. So um, <clears throat> there's not a new thing. You only have to go back to the progressives of the late 19th century who, uh, after studying in German universities, came back to America and said, well, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, these are all historically time-bound documents which have outlived their usefulness and we need to move on to something else. So yes, I think there's there's substantive proportions of the, the political left, and by that I really mean the, let's call it the intellectual left, who have clearly taken a set against these sorts of things. But I think if one is trying to build an um, alternative to what they want, which I think is not good for America, I don't think we have any other choice but to go to this particular set of reference points, which even... Um, well, not even, but quite a few people on the left would say, yeah, that's, I think that's basically right. They might disagree about the degree to which this, the government is involved in the economy or the precise meaning of different aspects of the First Amendment, but they do believe there should be a First Amendment. They should, do believe there should be a constitution, that they do believe there should be limits on, on government to a certain extent as well, and that the founding is generally a good thing.
Other comments? Yes, up the back. Could, could you make a case that there's an inherent weakness in free, the whole idea of the free market um, where we see today this, again, the carrying through of this I, deeper kind of ideology that you can make of yourself what you want. You can make a business however you want with uh, without the constraints of, of government, um, <clears throat> without other kind of constraints. I can create my own business. I can create my own identity. Um, and that's where we get to morality um, and uh, even matters of I can create whatever gender I want. Um, I shouldn't be constrained. I mean, isn't could you say that there's a logical inherent weakness of where this is ultimately going? And I think a lot of conservatives have been pushing back against that because they've been seeing that this could be and, and seems to be at least on some level a a, an, a logical inference of where people have taken this outside of economics because sure. there's an underlying philosophy of just freedom and you're not going to tell me what to do. And by the way, I'm going to create my own identity, in fact. Sure. No, and there are definitely some free market people who do think that way. I know some of them. Um, and they're basically operating from a very different set of premises about the human person that I operate from, and certainly I know the Acton Institute operates from. And that premise, of course, is that there are certain things that are fixed in life and that don't change, one of which is human nature, one of which is human anthropology, one of which is our capacity for reason, another is our capacity for free choice, another is the fact that we are um, fallible creatures, another is that we're... we're um, creative creatures, and another is that we can know truth, including the truth about ourselves. So <clears throat> I, I think you, there's, there's definitely, there are definitely people who think the way that you're describing. The problem I think they have with their argument is that if everything is in flux and there's no real foundation upon which they can base their case for freedom, freedom for the sake of freedom is the sort of circular argument. Freedom for the sake of flourishing, freedom for the sake of virtue, freedom for the sake of um, bringing about civilization is a much more, I think, coherent and convincing argument than freedom so I can be as libertine as I want. Um, and the other thing, of course, is that <clears throat> very few people actually live their lives that way. I've noticed people who, who articulate that type of, that, that particular type of libertarian philosophy they generally don't live their lives according to the principles of that particular position. They have families, they're married, they, they, they have a sort of set of disciplines by which they live their lives. They raise their children in a particular way. They don't give their children the choice of, hey, do you want to go to school or not? Or do you want to study this or do that? They don't do that. So <clears throat> my point is that, that when you start to look into the logic of that position, it's circular, it's unsatisfying, and it doesn't reflect the reality of who we are as individual, social, reasonable, freely choosing, creative, uh, fallible beings. Yes. I have an online question. You mentioned that the founders described the United States as a commercial republic. Would the commercial republic be better supported by a U.S. economy with less concentration and very large corporations in a more robust entrepreneurial sector? Mm -hmm. Well, <clears throat> I would argue that we need both. We need lots and lots of entrepreneurs. And America still remains the world's most entrepreneurial country. Despite all the problems that America has, it remains the world's most entrepreneurial country. Even though entrepreneurship is declining in America, it's declining faster everywhere else in the world. So we're all declining. We're just declining a little slower than other people. So that's the first thing. Um, and you need entrepreneurs because they bring new ideas. They bring competition. They threaten the uh, sort of established businesses. They force established businesses to change the way they do things. They can even complete, make a complete industry redundant within a couple of years. These things have revolutionized the world, but they've also driven a lot of other things that we used to take for granted out of business. Um, on the subject of bigness, on, the, on, on corporations, there are some things, there are many things, in fact, that we need large businesses for. Um, 
I don't think we're going to have mom and pop shops operating airlines, right? There are economies of scale that go along with big sized organizations. The real question, I think, when it comes to um, what's called concentration, is whether the concentration, which is nowhere near as, as significant as many people think it is, and I go through some numbers in the book to show that the American economy is much less concentrated than most people realize. But where concentration does exist, it's, it's not because um, the corporations of, of its bigness, it's because it has friends in the legislature or it has managed to successfully organize the regulatory framework to suit itself and hurt actual and potential competitors. So um, to my mind, <clears throat> it's not the bigness that's the problem. The question you have to ask yourself is, is a business being maintained in place because it has successfully, quote unquote, rigged system, the political system, uh, or is it big because it's doing things much more efficiently and effectively than anyone else can do right now in this particular moment in time? That's the question you have to ask yourself. It's, if the answer is the latter, that's fine. If it's the former, that's a problem. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Vault, I'm Eric Cohn.